you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. It's our final Film Week program of 2022, and if you've been a listener to Film Week for multiple years, you know this time of year is the biggest for films going into Oscar consideration, as well as having a ready and available movie-going audience around the time of the year-end holidays. Joining us to review the critics, it takes four of them to go through all the films that we have. Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com, Andy Clark. Amy Nicholson, film writer for the New York Times and host of the podcast Unspooled, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with Damien Chazelle, the writer-director's new film Babylon. Like La La Land, this takes us uh, to uh, Los Angeles that is uh, full of the entertainment industry. Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Diego Calva, star in the film uh, set in 1920s L.A. Amy, please start us on Babylon. I will, gladly. Uh, I think this film is going to be very, very polarizing, but I will say that I absolutely loved it. Uh, Damien Chazelle is really trying to capture this arc of Hollywood that, t- that took place at the very end of the silent era to the early 30s. You know, we, we know this story when the studio switched to sound, when, you know, money came in town, when morality clauses took over. And a lot of the stars did not make that leap. Those strokes of the story, you know, are, are seen in like Singing in the Rain, a movie that he like adapts here and kind of injects into the film. And yet what he does that I love is he tells the story in such an exaggerated, maniacal, bright, colorful fashion that it feels truer than it ever has felt before. Even though you know that every single bit of this is like exaggerated, you know, he's really capturing the spirit of Hollywood in this era in a way that I don't feel like I've ever fully, fully seen. I mean, and, 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 in, and in a way, it's like so over the top, you know, five minutes into this film, you're asking yourself like, well, yes, but would hundreds of people of all different backgrounds really be at this party having an orgy in front of a jazz band and a mountain of cocaine and an elephant? You know, this is the spirit that the movie should be seen in. it should not be seen as something factual. It's kind of as exaggerated as something like Hollywood Babylon, which it takes a lot of nods to. But it really is just one great scene after another that captures the feel, you know, and you can watch this movie as a scholar and be like, Hollywood was mostly paved by the 20s, but it does, this film doesn't need to be taking place in a stark desert, but you feel what it was like to have, to, to have all these like misfits come here and build a city at the end of the world. And I just found myself kind of cackling with delight at just one great scene after another, you know, it's, it's about as true of a story about old Hollywood as like old Hollywood was when like, D.W. Griffith was building Babylon for intolerance, like right here in Silver Lake. And, you know, just just this true without being true at all. But Margot Robbie is marvelous. She plays like a younger actor who comes in and kind of tears into the scene, like makes her presence felt. Brad Pitt is the older actor on her on her way on his way out. Just every single moment of this, I absolutely adore. Wow, Babylon, Damien Chazelle's new film, Tim. Well, yeah, uh, polarizing indeed. 
Uh, uh, every single moment of this, I do not absolutely enjoy. But I will say this. There are some absolutely epic moments in this movie. Uh, and then there are these really, really great moments. Uh, the epic moments are not the great moments, and that's the problem. Uh, uh, the epic moments feel like uh, gigantic stage moments. They feel like exactly what Amy says, this idea of what Hollywood was uh, at the beginning back then. But even as we're at this party, this raging party with an elephant, Margot Robbie arrives in this red dress, and she is oh, outstanding. She's outstanding in this movie. I didn't buy one second of it. Not for one moment. And generally speaking, as we work our way through this movie, I'm never buying any of it until we get to these quiet moments, the great moments. There's a scene in this movie when Gene Smart is talking to Brad Pitt, and she's explained to him that their time has come and gone. This is a beautiful scene, a powerful well, scene. She's a great she's actor. One, and it's, it's just the truest moment in the scene, and nothing blows up, and the elephant doesn't do anything weird. Um, there's some real great performances here, but it's all just too much. It's not only <laughs> not what Hollywood was, it's not even our idea of what Hollywood was. Well, and so what is the idea behind it? It's three hours, eight minutes running time. What if if it's not attempting to sort of realistically capture that cusp of of talkies and silent Hollywood? What is it doing, Tim? It, it, it is certainly attempting to be extremely comprehensive about this period. And while it's doing all of that, it's trying to also tell these very personal stories about these characters: Marble Robbie's character, Manny's character, Brad Pitt's character. Uh, what has driven them to want to be stars? And for Margot Robbie comes from nothing. As a matter of fact, she would have to climb out of the gutter to be nothing. With her dad played by Eric Roberts who's been exploiting her whole entire life and she wants to be a movie star. That story of everybody who ever got on a bus or a train and came to Hollywood, that's a great story. Same thing with the young man from Mexico. What's his, he's a talented production designer. He, he's going to be a wonderful producer but he's Mexican. So it wants so to tell the all of these stories. It's yeah. the truth in the fantasy. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. So uh, Amy, is that how you see it? It is because I feel like, you know, People sort of shortcut the idea of the 1910s here in Hollywood. To me, they were so exciting. And I feel like this film mashes up a lot of the idea of the 1910s into its idea of the 1920s. But this town really was a place for misfits. You had to be strange, creative, weird to do something as radical as leave your home and come here, especially at the very beginning of this film industry when it was seen as, you know, chaotic, low class, when there were like actual cowboys running around on sets shooting people, when people did die in the making of films that took place here. You know, Cecil B. DeMille accidentally had got somebody shot on one of his early films. This town was very chaotic before, you know, money men like, you know, Joseph Kennedy came in and sort of tried to tried to stamp everything down. And it, there was just freedom here. Mm. You know, freedom for women to work, freedom for women to be directors and writers. You see glimpses of that here. I, I think right. what I love about this film is in its exaggerated way, you taste that freedom. Babylon is rated R from writer-director Damien Chazelle. It's in wide release. A Man Called Auto stars Tom Hanks. The film's directed by Mark Foster. David McGee adapts it from uh, both a Swedish novel and a Swedish film from seven, eight years ago. Andy. Uh, yeah, and by coincidence, Tim and I reviewed that <laughs> Swedish film on this show six years ago. I, I dragged it out of the archives to listen to see what we said. Um, this is a feel-good sort of dramedy Tom Hanks Christmas film, uh, and uh, I felt good. Uh, Otto is a man whose wife has died six months earlier. 
He's now been laid off from the job he's been at his whole life. He lives in a, uh, a, a complex of units uh, that uh, are, have been taken over by a horrible big real estate company who are trying to make changes and are interfering in people's lives. And he decides he's going to kill himself, which he tries several times with basically comic results. Um, he is then uh, forced into dealing with a new couple who have moved in, a young couple with two kids, and they sort of force their affection on him. And he has to eventually sort of come to a place where he realizes that there is life without his wife and without that job and that there are good things he can do. So it's uh, sort of a dark comedy at the beginning, and then it gets less dark. Uh, Hanks is perfect for this. He's playing the grumpiest of grumpy old men, and because it's Tom Hanks, that's got an extra power. The younger version of him in flashbacks is played by his youngest son, Truman Hanks, who is perfectly okay. The film slavishly remakes the original almost scene for scene, sometimes shot for shot. The few changes they made were all improvements. Mm. So as much as I hate seeing foreign films remade for a more popular American audience, I think that those couple changes they made were they did all right for the here. better. That's nice mm. to hear. A Man Called Otto starring Tom Hanks. Tim. Slavishly indeed. If you were to start these two movies at the exact same moment <laughs> and let them go, I promise you it wouldn't make any difference which one you looked at and you'd, you'd be in the, it's that. But you know why? Because all of the scenes were working in the first movie too. So why would you mess up well, that That usually scene? doesn't mean anything with a remake. <laughs> no, you, you think, well, we can it, always do it better. It. We can do it better. But but Tom Hanks is brighter than that. I love his face in this movie. He's he's. I don't think I've ever seen him scowl that much, even in war movies. <laughs> where he's, just, he's, just, he's always angry. He's, he's got this thing. And the thing of it is, at the end of the movie, he's still Otto. But he's just a little softer, a little mm -hmm. kinder. But he still requires precision. There's a scene where these people cannot... Parallel park. <laughs> and that I, you could just watch it a dozen times. My dad used to do that. He's, he was that guy. A man called Otto, starring Tom Hanks, Mariana Trevino, David McGee wrote the screenplay. Mark Forster directed it. It's rated PG thirteen, and it's in select theaters for the New Year's weekend, and then opens in wide release in mid January. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish animated film. Antonio Banderas is back uh, in the lead role. Joel Crawford and Anuel Mercado are the co-directors of the film. Charles. Well, Puss in Boots was the last film in sort of the Shrekerverse, and that was 11 years ago. It was the spinoff from the fourth Shrek movie. And I don't know if many people have spent the last 11 years wishing those characters in that world uh, would come back any more than they had wanted Bo Peep to come back to make Toy Story 4. Uh, the premise is that uh, Puss in Boots, in his dashing, self-consciously heroic way, has burned through eight of the nine lives a cat gets, and now he's being threatened by this wolfish death, and he's terrified. And so he hears that there is a treasure map that will lead you to a place where you can get one wish and he can wish his lives back. But Selma Hayek's Kitty Softpaws is also after the map. 
uh, they get involved in, they have to steal it. They're being chased by Goldilocks and the three bears, who I never realized were supposed to be Cockney, but apparently that cottage in the woods was within the sound of Bow Bells in London. They wanted to wish everything just right in case you didn't get they were the three bears and it's just right did you get that larry yes it's yes, just yes, right yes yes just right and then they're also being chased by um jack horner who is this monstrous misshapen giant who wants to control every magical object in the world for some reason why who knows uh it's a series of very elaborate chases they borrow rather shamelessly from Spider-Verse in the way they speed up and slow down and play with the different um, rates of movement in the runs and chases, but to no great effect. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And then at the very end, you they're sailing off too far, far away, suggesting there's going to be yet more Shrek movies, which is not the cheeriest way I can think of to end a movie. So... I will claim the title they awarded Tom Hanks of being the, the greatest of curmudgeons. I'm taking that back. <laughs> Doing your part, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, Amy. I actually really like the Puss in Boots cartoons, and so much of that is because of Antonio Banderas voicing Puss in Boots himself. I think he does this character with just so much delight. You know, he's got, like, egoism. He's got, like, pride. He's got vaingloriousness. And here, this character, I think, gets to explore some really fun dimensions, you know, as he is, you know, giving up part of his heroic bluster now and learning what the taste of fear is, learning that he might actually die. I, I He, you know, he tries a little detour where he becomes, he considers becoming a lap cat. And the musical cue when he decides to try to become a, a lap cat is almost like you're seeing Puss in Boots go into his own version of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so dark. And I find... I find him very charming and very funny. There's bits in this movie that are absolutely annoying. There's this chihuahua that shows up who is just grating every single time he talks and he's talking constantly because somebody over there thought he was really good for, for comic relief. But this movie to me is just absolutely like a silly little trifle. You know, at one point you have uh, Jiminy Cricket show up and the, the cricket is doing a Jimmy Stewart impersonation the entire time. And if you find that legitimately funny, which I turns out I do, <laughs> honestly, it kind of worked for me. And I, I admire the animation here. You know, I feel like the Shrek, Shrek really tried to be sort of more photo real than real for a really long time. And here when it gets more into like kind of a blocky, chunky animation style, I found it actually really striking. I, I appreciate that they're evolving puss just a little bit puss in boots the last wish is rated pg it's in wide release starring the voice of antonio banderas joel crawford and anuel mercado are the directors of the film coming up we'll hear about the british drama living about sarah Polly, the writer director's movie women talking and uh, the European movie Corsage. Those are just a few of the many films. It's our final film week of 2022. A very, very big couple of weekends for films. We'll tell you more in a moment.
It's Film Week, the final Film Week for 2022. Larry Mantle, joined by critics Tim Cogshell, Amy Nicholson, Andy Klein, and Charles Solomon. We have a lot more movies to talk about that are being released in the final two weeks of the year. Next up, the British drama Living from director Oliver Hermanis. The film is written by Kazuo Ishigura, uh, adapted from a 1952 Japanese film from Akira Kurosawa. Bill Nye stars. Tim, what do you think of Living? I, I love this film. It's probably one of my favorite films of the year. And it actually begins with the Tolstoy uh, uh, novel, uh, uh, Death of uh, Ivian Ilovich, uh, which... Uh, Kurosawa adapted into that 1952 film, which this film uh, shadows very closely in the way that we were talking about before. It walks right along the path of the Kurosawa film. Shorter, but slavish in its way. It's, in, it's just absolutely beautiful to me. Cinematography, this score in this film, it's about, it's about this um, public bureaucrat named Williams. And he, and he realizes that he has lived his whole entire life not doing anything except being this public bureaucrat in, his little, in this little office with these other bureaucrats that work around him. He's at the top of the circle. He finds out that he's dying. And it clicks a switch in him. He lives with his daughter and his, his son and his daughter-in-law. And he realizes that they really only care about his pension. And he decides that he's going to try to live his life. And we watch Bill Nye as he works his way through this film trying to get something out of his life before he dies. There are these people that want to build this playground uh, in the neighborhood, and he's going to do everything that he can to get that playground built before he dies. But he still does it in this soft and gentle and quiet way. The score is by this young woman named Emile Levenice Farouche. This score is so breathtakingly beautiful. It's on the top of my list of best scores of the hmm. year, along with Goodnight Oppie. It, it floats this entire film on it. It's just a beautiful, beautiful movie. We're talking about living. Amy, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, the question here that this film is about is, what has your life been worth? And that question is just so relatable, so sad, so classic. You know, this is the question that you have asked in in the Scrooge story, and it, and it, it's a wonderful life. But what I appreciate about the style is it's done in this just dry, surrealistic way. I mean, this this office that Bill Nighy works at, you know, doing well at his job means sending people to every single corner of this building and never helping anybody at all. You know, it's this labyrinth of bureaucracy and everybody is formal and soft-spoken, but the satire itself about like, what are, what are the people who work for the government here to do? Are they here to help us at all? feels as pointed as like Terry Gilliam's Brazil. So it's mm -hmm. almost like this Brazil backdrop, but with a movie where everybody talks so formally, so strenuously polite, you know, even when they're the most shocking things happen without people raising their voices at all. And what I appreciate about this movie is that it really is about, you know, inertia, about how things are done. And it doesn't pretend that inertia is easy to defeat. I was expecting this movie to start being kind of like cheery, you know, upbeat, sentimental, to pull a couple punches. And it really does it. It really keeps the scale small and the points it wants to make absolutely heartfelt. The British drama living. Andy? Uh, yeah. I did not like this nearly as much mm. as Ikiru, the, the original Kurosawa film. Which is a terrific um, film. But Bill Nighy is great. I mean, he carries it uh, mostly... It's a fairly faithful remake. They take out one or two narrative devices that were really interesting in the Kurosawa film. It's much more conventional. And uh, they trim it by about a half hour, which is not such a bad thing. But I don't think it's as powerful 
in the long run. We're talking about Living, rated PG-13. It's at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. Women Talking from writer-director Sarah Pauly is based on a, a novel from a few years back by uh, Miriam Tavis. Uh, the film stars Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, and Judith Ivey. Amy, please start us on Women Talking. I will, yeah. This novel is actually based on a true story of something that happened in a Mennonite community in Bolivia back in 2009, where the women of the community were waking up with bruises all over their legs, realizing that they had been abused, raped in their sleep, and they're told by the rest of the men in their community that it's all in their heads. And the women, right up at the top of the film, are like, they realize it is not, that the men have been drugging them and abusing them in their sleep. And the, the setup of the film is that they are told in their very patriarchal, austere, cloistered community that they have to forgive their abusers within 24 hours or they must all leave the community. And so with that setup, this film then is about the women of this community gathering together. It's, it's essentially almost a one barn movie where they're sitting in this location and talking. Like, do we stay? Do we go? Do we fight? If we fight, what is fight? You know, and it's a fascinating movie about just watching women of all ages debate what course of action to take. And, you know, I feel like Polly really understands like the mindsets of her characters and she presents all of these viewpoints fairly. And you get kind of this really quiet thrill of realizing you're watching a movie about women who have never felt powerful in this room and among each other feeling powerful enough to, to speak their minds to each other. And even to kind of snap at like the one male character that we spend a lot of time with here, Ben Wishaw, who is semi-excommunicated and he's just there to record their notes. It's just a film with so much depth that has, of course, one of the greater casts that you've seen this year, especially Jesse Buckley as one of the women who is married to one of the rapists and is saying, what do we do if we leave? I have boys. Do I leave them behind? It's, it sounds a bit like a play, the way you're describing it, Amy, but um, but that it works on, on film despite being in this one location. Yeah, it almost feels like a, an experimental take on 12 Angry Men. Women Talking mm-hmm. is the film from writer-director Sarah Pauly. Tim? And, and the images uh, that, that Pauly and her cinematographer capture across the arc of these days, uh, the men have gone off. Uh, and these women have to decide what they're going to do over the course of this weekend. So uh, over the course of these long days, we sit in this barn, and we're looking through these alcoves, windows, uh, toward the outside. And the way it's lit is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, you can tell what time of day it is simply by looking through the window. But all the characters, and we move around this room. Ben Wishaw, fantastic in this film and so important. He's The character is in the book. Uh, in the book, though, his character narrates. In the film, his character does not. In the film, the character is narrated by, by, by a little girl. It's all plays kind of like a fable, I think. Yeah. It's not quite like, like it could possibly be in, in reality. But it's sharp and it's biting. Uh, and I think it's extremely powerful. Yeah. I, th- I thought there were a few plot points that I had some problems with that aren't worth going into. But uh, for a film that is largely all talk, it is incredibly beautifully shot. And it's in a wide, much wider than cinemascope widescreen, which is very interesting for a film that's just people sitting talking. And the images are wonderful, and there are certainly several terrific performances. Women Talking from writer-director Sarah Polly. It's rated PG-13. It's at the AMC Grove and the AMC Century City. 
A Corsage stars Vicky Creeps, the film written and directed by Marie Kreutzer. Tim? Well, many many liberties are taking in the telling of this story uh, about a year in the life, yeah, of, 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 a, of <laughs> Empress Elizabeth of Austria, who was an actual person, uh, and lived. Now, there are many things that are true, too. She was incredibly thin, and, yep. and very much so on purpose. She had these very particular course, uh, sets created for her, and she hardly ever ate anything, and all kind, kinds of stuff that are actually true that are in the story. Um, her She was married to Franz Joseph, and her mother, her mother-in-law was a piece of work, and, uh, and took her first kid away from her uh, to raise that child herself and the child died uh, uh, and so she she endured all of that and many many other things what this film does and, and I think fairly successfully is tie all of that to today uh, me too uh, uh, the, you know, the, yeah. the women's movement that's what it does fairly successfully but in doing so we abandon the, the telling of the story of the empress who the empress lived to be you know 70 80 years old and was actually assassinated this is all history i'm not yeah. ruining any, anything <laughs> for anybody but that none of that happens in the, in this movie so but it's a very powerful story that's smooshing a couple of things together that might not necessarily go together but it worked for me anyway yeah what do you think Andy? well um I enjoyed it. Uh, it is like a fantasy on the life of Empress uh, Elizabeth. And uh, uh, it clearly wants to be reflecting on current day things and all the sort of eating disorder. Uh, aging. Aging, male that, gaze, all of that stuff. All that stuff. And, uh, but the tip-off that it's trying to be about the modern world is when you have troubadours within the film, uh, one one sings as tears go by, <laughs> and another sings help me make it through the night, which kind of pulls you right out of the film, but I think that is very deliberate to connect it to the real world now. Mm, all of that is. There's, look, there's a moment when when the Empress has had enough and and, and she's leaving the room, uh, the, the Emperor and everybody's behind her, and she, and she, and she, gives, them, she gives them the old bird. And I'm thinking, yeah. I don't think they did that. <laughs> oh, yeah. that I don't is know, that may have been around the late 1800s. Has that, that been around? <laughs> okay, well, look that one up. Uh, Corsage, starring Vicky Creeps, who, by the way, uh, won the Best Actress honors at the Cannes Film Festival for this performance. The film written and directed by Marie Kreutzer, and uh, it's in German with English subtitles. You can see it over New Year's weekend at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. The following week, it expands to other Lemley locations. Next up on Film Week, Matilda, the musical, uh, based on Roald Dahl's book, uh, the film starring Emma Thompson, Matthew Warchus is the director. Amy? This film is just an absolute delight. Uh, it is the film adaptation of Matilda, the musical that has been, you know, running around Broadway for about a decade. And that play just takes Roald Dahl's original story, you know, that is about this young girl. She's got mild telekinesis. She's a genius. She's being, you know, beset upon by all the adults in her life who don't respect her genius and are just sort of dumb and, and violent and abusive to her. And she uses her powers, both of brain and, you know, mental, mental moving things around in order to get her revenge. You know, it's, it's a revenge story. And the way that this is put together is just such a, it's such a, it's so charming. The music is really funny. The lyrics are great. The dance numbers are terrific. It's just high energy from start to finish. 
And it's a movie that is, you know, surrounded by child performers who are not grating in the slightest. You know, they're just very credible, very funny, very wise. Um, and what you have in the in in terms of a villain is just fantastic. Uh, Emma Thompson plays the headmistress of the school that Matilda goes to, and she's been costumed to look pretty much like a tank. Like she's got giant shoulder pads, metal shoes. She stomps around. Her character is supposedly um, uh, Olympic hammer throwing winner. And she just, she takes children and grabs them by the hair and whirls them around and throws them out of the window. And I have to say in a time where I feel like so much children's entertainment has just been all about uplifting stories about the soul and how to have more empathy for your parents. And aren't we all trying to be a better person to have a movie that is just like, no, being a child is not fun. You might want revenge. And you know what? You deserve to have revenge. You know, when somebody tells Matilda that two wrongs don't make a right, she's like, well, what if they do? And I honestly really appreciate this kind of unromantic view of childhood that feels like it really gets to the way that Roald Dahl saw the world. Matilda, the musical starring Emma Thompson, Alicia Weir, and Lashana Lynch, directed by Matthew Warchus. Dennis Kelly uh, is the writer. Uh, it's based on the Roald Dahl book from 1988, Matilda. It's rated PG, and it's at the Bay Theater in Pacific Palisades, and very appropriately, a Christmas Day Netflix uh, release and continuing to stream on Netflix. Uh, Matilda, the musical. You're listening to Film Week on KPCC, and it's our final film week of 2022. Some of the movies being released over the Christmas weekend, some of them over the New Year's weekend, and we'll at least get started here on Broker, a South Korean film that's written and directed by Hirokazu Kurita. Andy. Uh, yeah, he's a director who uh, whose first film was the dullest movie I've ever watched in my life, <laughs> Mabarossi. I really hated it. But in fact, his subsequent films, he's gotten better and better. Mm. Shoplifters. Shoplifters and Nobody Knows and Afterlife. Mm. All of those I thought were improvements. And I think this is the best jet of his stuff that I've seen. It's about a young woman who drops off a baby at a baby drop box in Korea that's actually being run not by the officials, but by some scammers yeah. who are setting up illegal adoptions. And she changes her mind and she ends up joining forces with them and trying to get the best price for her baby. But in the meanwhile, she and the, the two essentially scam artists and another orphan who's just tagged himself along, who's, uh, what, eight years yeah, old or yeah, something. Yeah, too old. <laughs> and, Can't get uh, and, and nobody scouts. wants him now. They become an ersatz family. Mm. And while they're doing all this, there are two cops who are tracking them relentlessly, trying to set up a sting operation, which they are very bad at. And uh, it's... Is kind of heartwarming, and uh, I I found this really enjoyable. Hold that so thought. We'll continue here what Tim has to say about Broker when we come back. Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Andy Klein 
Tim Cogshell, Amy Nicholson, and Charles Solomon. We're in the middle of hearing about the South Korean film Broker from writer-director Hirokazu Koreeda. Uh, the film is rated R. Tim, what did you think? You, you wouldn't think that a movie about selling babies would be funny. But it's funny, this movie. These two guys are a couple of knuckleheads, and they love these children. They love the children in the orphanage and the little, the little boy that's running around with them and can't get adopted. They, they, they adore them all. One of them was a, an orphan himself when he was little, so, so he understands this. And what they're actually trying to do is make sure that these babies end up with the best parents they possibly can. So um, the, the movie about selling babies is absolutely hysterically funny, and everything turns out okay. Broker is rated R. Again, it's in Korean with English subtitles, and you can see it uh, over the New Year's weekend at Landmark's New Art Theater in West L.A. The biographical musical drama Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, stars Naomi Aki. Uh, the film's directed by Cassie Lemons. Anthony McCartan wrote the screenplay. Amy. Yeah, this uh, biopic of, of, of Whitney Houston is really just an excuse to sit in a theater and listen to her original songs, which mostly you have Naomi Aki just lip sync in full, in the same costumes, in the same setups a lot of the times. And it just hits the major beats of her, of her life. It's hard to say that you come out of this film knowing Whitney much better. You know, she doesn't write her own songs after all. She just sort of sang them with so much passion that they felt personal. And what you really kind of walk away with is just the sense that Whitney died while she was still struggling to define herself. You know, that one of the things the film does well is it gives you empathy for the kind of snappish diva that she seemed to become in the last decade and a half, kind of as though the film is saying the only way that she could take control of her life was just by refusing to do what people wanted her to do, you know, by telling people no, by trying to make her own mistakes, even if that meant destroying her voice through smoking. And so it's a sad film, and yet it feels kind of strangely empty at the same time. We're talking about the biographical musical drama Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody. And um, is is it actually Whitney Houston's voice that's used in the film or uh, the lead actor's voice that's used, Amy? It's Whitney's. There's two songs where the lead actor is sort of humming to herself, like she sings a lullaby to you know her daughter, uh, Bobby Christina, when she's a baby. <laughs> And at another point, she's sort of learning to sing a bit with her mom when she's a small choir girl. But other than that, it is Whitney songs. And you're just listening to, you know, I will always love you as it's playing over her getting married, her give, having giving birth to her first kid. And you're thinking, wow, this feels so monumental. But it really is just because you love that song. Mm. Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody is in wide release rated PG-13. The mystery thriller, The Pale Blue Eye. The film is set in 1830, West Point, The Pale Blue Eye, Tim. Yeah, yeah, 1830. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, in fact, went to West Point uh, in, in, in 1830. He was there for a whole uh, seven months and got court-martialed and kicked the hell out uh, because he just couldn't follow orders, which is ridiculous because before he went to West Point, he was in the Army. He was a sergeant major. He was an artillery sergeant uh, for years. So he, he was a soldier, he was. Um, but, yes, he went to West Point, and then uh, we have the sort of convoluted mystery noir thriller uh, that takes advantage of that fact that he was at West Point in 1830 with Christian Bale uh, playing this, oh, he's, he's, na he's now a drunken, distraught former private detective. His wife has died. His daughter has left. 
um, there's been a murder at West Point. Uh, the commanders there want to figure out what happened before it can get out to anybody. They go to Christian Bale to get him to figure it out. Christian Bale quickly figures out that Harry Melling, who plays Poe, is a very, very bright boy. He's going to use him uh, to help him figure out what happened. The thing is, uh, Edgar Allan Poe is very bright, and he is going to figure out what happened. Now, this movie becomes very convoluted and dense. I kind of figured out what happened anyway. <laughs> really? Yeah. I didn't. Uh, it was, I don't know. <laughs> until until it showed up. Uh, yeah, uh, just don't reveal what happened. <laughs> I won't reveal what happened, but there's a huge plot switcheroo at the, oh, at okay. the end that I felt was kind of a cheat. I mean, we really didn't get enough hints that this was a possibility, and uh, it sort of dropped on us in the last 10 minutes of the film. Otherwise, what would you think of The Pale Blue Eye? Uh, I thought it was engaging until that moment, and then I felt like I had been cheated. Yeah, Amy, what did you think? I agree about the mystery. I found the mystery itself a bit dull. Uh, but I, I liked the setting of this. I like the character that Christian Bale is playing. You know, they, they say that one of his uh, former, his skills as a city constable was gloveless interrogation. And I don't know what that means, but it sounds really violent. And I like that his character seems so polite, but his sarcasm just runs very deep. Like he's told at one point not to drink on the job. And so he just, in the next scene, hoists a glass and says, here's to rules. Uh, when Poe shows up, I thought, this is great. But after a while, I feel like the movie starts coasting on the novelty of just having Poe in this movie. Like, seeing him on a date isn't that interesting. This character becomes more and more dull the longer you spend time with Poe. But if you had told me that this was a Poe mystery from the beginning, I would have thought, I have to see that. And I'm glad that I did. The Pale Blue Eye is rated R. It's at select theaters and begins streaming on Netflix January 6th. Alice Darling, a thriller starring Anna Kendrick, uh, Mary Nye, uh, makes feature directorial debut, the daughter of Bill Nye. Uh, the film's written uh, by Alana Francis and Mark Van De Ven. Tim, what'd you think of Alice Darling? Not, not bad, not bad at all. More drama than thriller, although it, it has that mode to it. Uh, Miss Kendrick is this young woman. She has these two friends and a boyfriend. Her boyfriend is a very odd character that seems to be a little possessive. Uh, sometimes gaslights her a little bit about her friends and her life. And eventually, we end up on this road trip with Anna and her two girlfriends where she starts to talk about her boyfriend. And we see in flashback exactly what's been going on between them. And we come to know exactly who her boyfriend is. And her girlfriends go to work at helping her get out of this relationship, which is completely psychological. He's not abusing her physically in any way, but he's abusing her. He absolutely is. Alice Darling is rated R. The film is in a one-week Oscar qualifying I run. I, I should say Mary Nye directed this. Yeah. Bill yeah. Nye's daughter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alice Darling, again, is rated R. This Place Rules, a documentary um, which um, features uh, Alex Jones and the insurrection January 6th on the U.S. Capitol. Andy. Uh, Andrew Callahan is a guy with a, a uh, YouTube channel and I don't know if this has all been repurposed, but he's going around interviewing people in the run-up to January 6th, starting in, in right after the election. He interviews Alex Jones a lot, Enrique Tarrio, uh, who is obviously lying about everything. <laughs> and he works very hard to also find left-wing people behaving badly, and he finds them. But overwhelmingly, this is about people who were totally sucked down the QAnon 
sinkhole and uh it's uh not not saying we don't know but it's great to hear these people give their justifications the film this place rules is unrated it's streaming on hbo max beginning new year's weekend another documentary this week turn every page the adventures of robert caro and robert gottlieb tim very straightforward this document robert caro of course uh, uh the power broker about robert moses the historian York, the yeah. great historian that was the first book that robert gottlieb edited for him and then they started their many years project many decades project uh, about the, of the lbj series uh four of them completed uh, uh, Caro is 86, Godlieb is 91. They're still working on the fifth book. This doc is basically about, I'm going to make it to the end of this book. Robert Godlieb <laughs> is like, guy, I'm, 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 I'm 91. You know, I really want to edit this book. Uh, Godlieb's daughter is a documentarian. It's very straightforward, them. It's historical, great stuff over the course of the last 60 years, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And really gets us into the publishing world, I oh, hope, as well. Very, very deeply and very poignantly and not always kindly. All right, turn every page. The Adventures of Robert Caro and Robert Gottlieb. Lizzie Gottlieb, Robert Gottlieb's daughter, is the director of the documentary. It's rated PG. And uh, the film uh, for New Year's weekend is at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. In mid-January, it moves to other Lemley locations. Coming up, we'll hear what our critics have to say about the documentary Wildcat, as well as the Irish comedy Joyride. That's all coming up. It's Film Week right here on KPCC. on KPCC, our last film week for 2022. We've got a lot of films, uh, ones released over the Christmas weekend, movies released over the New Year's weekend. We're hearing all about them from our critics, Amy Nicholson, Tim Cogshell, Andy Klein, and Charles Solomon. Next up is the documentary Wildcat, directed by Trevor Frost and Melissa Lesh. Amy. Yeah, this is a documentary that takes place in the Peruvian Amazon, and it mostly follows this uh, British kid named Harry. Like As a teenager, Harry um, signed up to fight in the Afghan war, and now this is seven years later. He's in his mid-20s. He's covered in tattoos. He's pretty broken. He's received a medical discharge for PTSD and depression, and he has decided just to kind of leave society, go to the Amazon. And when he does, he winds up getting really involved in animal conservation. Um, the, the kind of crux of this documentary is that he becomes kind of a specialist in trying to work with carnivores, especially baby ocelots. And so he finds this like baby ocelot who's like, you know, a pound and a half. And he tries to raise this ocelot that he names Keanu in a, in a way that he doesn't become a pet. He becomes able to go hunt in the wild by himself. And to do this, you know, he has to move very far out into the farther out into the jungle. He has to teach him how to hunt frogs and snakes, you know, and there's really cute scenes of him playing with just this like giant cat and saying, eat your rodent. Don't play with your rodent. Just eat your rodent. Um, and so all of that is pretty cute. It doesn't seem to start feeling deep until a little bit further on into the documentary when you realize that, you know, the struggle he's having with Keanu, like can this broken animal find independence is really the way that people 
see Harry himself. You know, that, that whenever things go wrong with the cat, he sinks into the periods of suicidal thinking. His um, kind of like girlfriend, conservation owner, it seems like sort of a dubious but very intimate relationship. Um, her name is Samantha. She kind of feels the way towards him that he feels towards this cat. Will he be okay? Can he make it on it on his own? And so when this film kind of like dovetails these two stories together, it becomes really loving. Although I felt like it didn't, it doesn't have a, a lot of oomph. It's just sort of sweet scenes after each other. Wild Cat is the documentary. It's rated R. It's at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. as well as Lemley's Glendale. And it'll be streaming on Amazon Prime Video beginning New Year's weekend. The Irish comedic drama Joyride stars Olivia Coleman and Charlie Reed. Uh, Emer Reynolds is the director, and Albe Kogan is the writer. Tim. Yeah, yeah, the second of two Olivia Coleman films uh, out there right now. Empire yeah. of Light being the other one. A lot of Oscar buzz around that film. Not this one. Not because it's not good, because it is. It's quite good and very satisfying, uh, but it is a sort of ordinary, typical comedy, road comedy uh, with dramatic tinges that tugs at your heartstrings, but you know nothing bad is really going to happen. We have Olivia Coleman. She's this lawyer who's just had a baby, and she does not like this baby. She does not want this baby. She's going to get rid of this baby just as soon as she possibly can dump it with her sister. we got this little boy about 12. He's got this no-good dad who stole something. He loves his dad, but his dad has stolen something. He knows his dad is wrong. He stole that thing from his dad. He's going to give it back. This boy and Olivia Coleman end up in this cab together. He steals the cab, drives off. We're on a road trip with the little boy, Olivia Coleman, and this baby. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that movie. Thing is, the little boy is really good with babies. He even teaches her how to breastfeed the baby. How he knows how to <laughs> how breastfeed. How does he know that? You, you, you actually explain it in the movie why he knows. But he's really good with the baby. And we see the surrogate family getting built again as we learn this backstory. And we come to understand why Joy hates babies. She's not going to be hating babies at the end of the movie, obviously. Joyride starring Olivia Coleman and Charlie Reed. The film's unrated. It's at Lemley's Glendale Theater. We also have two classic films with 4K restorations which are out and available to be seen either at home or in theaters beginning with the classic uh, French film The Rules of the Game from writer-director Jean Renoir uh, Tim Stardust on this please. Oh extraordinary film you know, shot in 1938-1939 right before the war but we're in France and Kristallnacht and everything is going on and Jean and everyone knew that something was going to happen and he makes this film which takes to task the sort of French bourgeoisie that isn't paying attention to anything. That scene, Andy, when they go hunting uh, and they're shooting all the, the quail and the rabbits, uh, that is the most chilling scene in any movie. For one thing, it's not one of those scenes where no animals were killed in the shooting, no animals were killed, and we watch that, and that is on purpose. Jean wants us to engage in that moment. Uh, and then his servants, all the servants with these sort of boys who go out and pick up all the animals, it's just so powerful, so moving, and you know, in hindsight, wow. And it's also very funny. Yeah, a lot of funny. the time. John it's, in it's particular because he's in the movie. Sort of humanist, uh, uh, soft. Look, I mean, hard edged, but soft on the surface. 
look at at everything that's wrong with the French bourgeoisie. Mm. The rules of the game in a 4K restoration. The film is unrated. It's in French, of course, uh, with English subtitles. And it's at the American Cinematheque's Los Feliz Theater, uh, Friday night, December 29th. And Shadow of a Doubt, the great Alfred Hitchcock film, uh, which stars Teresa Wright, uh, Joseph Cotton, uh, that 1943 film restored. Uh, Andy? This was one of Hitchcock's favorites among his films, and it is a great film. Um, uh, Uncle Charlie is returning to town to visit his sister and her family, and it's a small town. Santa Rosa, Northern California. Santa Rosa, yes. And uh, the question is, is Uncle Charlie actually the Murray widow murderer who Mm. everybody is searching for? And he bonds with his niece, Charlie, who was named after him. And the film is brilliantly structured and brilliantly set up all the parallels between him and Charlie. Uh, I think it's shot for shot, almost perfect. I would I would say that the final scene where where the bad guy gets it mm. uh, is perhaps a little bit less stunning than the rest of the film but basically this is as good as and it what's gets. amazing are four credited screenwriters including and thornton wilder yeah, yeah and it's and it's a great screenplay yeah. and usually you have that many writers yeah. it's they're cleaning up a mess yeah not that tim well yeah everything he says Teresa, Teresa right oh my gosh she is so good <laughs> in this you know, if you, frankly she's wonderful in the film and she's ridiculously beautiful just so wonderful yeah so you good know? and Joseph Cotton uh, with all the layers of his character in this a, a sort of menacing charm very yeah. charming and yeah. uh, there's a brilliant moment where Joseph Cotton is talking about how rich widows are just wastes of protoplasm <laughs> basically and the scene ends with him looking straight into the camera and saying something like, why do they even deserve to live? Some, I forget the exact line, something but very it's chilling. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there are multiple scenes of this mm. that are that are chilling. And uh, Hume Cronin, of course, with a very long career writer as well, mm-hmm. has uh, a prominent acting role in the film as well. So uh, there's a lot of talent on display in Shadow of a Doubt. 4K restoration available on demand and digital rated PG. For our Film Week critics, I'm Larry Mantle. Thank you so much for joining us. Our critics this week uh, were Tim Cogshell, Charles Solomon, Amy Nicholson, and Andy Klein. We wish you a terrific holiday period. All these films, of course, that are now in release in the year end. This is the time when you get a chance to see those movies that at least consider themselves in Oscar qualifying runs. We'll see, of course, what happens with our Film Week Academy Award preview coming up in March, where we'll see which uh, are the ones that really get that Academy consideration. Again, happy holidays from all of us at Film Week and all of our critics here at KPCC. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.